Let's move into First Second Samuel, pardon me, chapter 3. Let's pick it up in verse 6, and I'll go ahead and pray as well. Lord, thank you for hearing us. Lord, thank you for inspiring us, for your spirit that gives meaning, illumination to right now those sectors of our heart that may be blinders down, lights off. We want to have the opportunity to see what you see in us to know what it is you see in the world around us, to be able to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, as you promise, is afforded when we study the word. Thank you for all that you have done for us. We look to you, Jesus, as our Lord, as our Savior, and it is by your name that we congregate even now, and it is in your we thank you for grace that has been given to us, mercy that has been shown to us, empowerment that you have provided in the work of your spirit to those who believe and are engaged in the proclamation of the gospel. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. Here we go. Verse 6 from time to time, you're going to see me uh, move my Bible around. And uh, it might be that I'm doing a exercise program, not lifting weights, but lifting my Bible, working out the arms. It might be that I'm having trouble with my glasses and I am trying to see better. Um, these are not the original glasses. I know you like these narrations. They take you kind of into storybook land with me. But I, I broke the pair that actually is my prescription uh, coming out on a Sunday when I was buffing and polishing them, and uh, I lost the nose piece. So it would have cantered on my face, looked quite odd, and hurt me while I was teaching. Um, so right now it's an adjustment that I make with light that is available. So maybe you'll be entertained at how well I can move between right and left hand. It was in verse 6, so. What so? Well, what we're seeing right now is, I believe, a plan of God to change the position of a man who is, from all accounts, an imposter. And so the title of this really tonight is The Posture of an Imposter. You'll see how that makes sense with regard to what it is that we do know. And you'll also see how in the plan of God and in his sovereignty, how he changes things by affecting dispositions, which cause positions to change. That can be important because sometimes we can find ourselves bent out of shape when our positions change because of the disposition of another. And we can get angry and we can say, this is wrong. All of that may be true. It, in fact, may be true that you were wronged in the disposition of a person towards you and ultimately the position that you lost or that you had to take on, which was not ever a part of your dream, your vision. But what we do know, because we've been studying in Romans, that all things work together for good to those who what? Trust God. All things work together for good. And most importantly, to those who are the called. You're believing, you're trusting, and you're confident that though it is a turn of events that you wouldn't have wished upon yourself, you're put in the situation of hopelessness in which the exercise of hope is believing in God as Abraham did. In hope, against hope, he believed in God that what God had promised, he therefore was able to perform. Not what I can perform, although there is a requirement of me in a disappointing time to be one who resigns and I become conformed to whom? The image of God. Really, most specifically, my Savior. There was no one more maliciously treated than Jesus. There was no one who was imposed upon 
more conspiratorially than Jesus, disrespected. And yet we see as an example, he kept his focus on the heavenly vision, that he came from heaven to earth to dwell with men and to go to a cross. It was the ultimate battlefield experience in which he lived a life in which the battle that he was in belonged to the Lord, not only as the Son of God, but his entrusting of his ministry to God and how it all played out. So we always try to encourage ourselves by seeing that in this is a picture of ultimately what it compels us to do, and that is to trust the Lord. However the people fall, whatever people may be raised up, whatever people may be put down. And we need to understand that though there may be people put up and they are godless or they are incompetent, God also allows them to be put down and for someone new to be put in place. You can go into the book of Daniel and see how that was true. For him as a young man and his three friends, and you can look that at the latter part of his life, the Lord brought in someone altogether differently that saw in him and saw in God's people something extraordinary that required him in the position that he held to give them the liberty that for 70 years they had prayed for. So is this that experience? It's only similar in terms of the fact that a surprise happened. And here there is a surprise. So even to just, you know, reestablish this, I think that it was a surprise to David that upon Saul's death, whom he mourned, and Jonathan and the two other brothers, that it wouldn't have initiated him immediately into taking on the king's crown, which he would have possessed because it had been given to him from an Amalekite who was a carpetbagger, profiting off the spoils of war and exalting him at a time in which he was brought low. David didn't appreciate that. We see at times where David in what is called a righteous dispensation of judgment strikes. But we also see him abstaining from taking that which God has not yet given to him. And on at least three occasions, maybe more, when he had opportunity to turn against Saul, he refused. And at least twice when he had opportunity to take Abner's life, he refused. It would seem with all that he did in discipline, that his moment was now. But we looked at in the beginning of chapter 3, rather than making that assumption, being in the guilt of presumption, he made inquiry of God who said, go to Hebron. Go to Hebron. Good question, David. I know you remember your anointing and I know that you have waited patiently. And I know there is not blood guilt on your hands. But this is a time in which your hands will be lifted to me. And as I allow decisions from others to play out, there will be a time in which I bring you in. The decisions right now that are playing out are, what is Abner going to do? And in fact, we're given an idea about what Abner's going to do. He has been with Saul, pursuing David, very likely 10 plus, maybe 15, 17 years Saul's junior. He was a cousin. He had family, blood, and bond with Saul. So in everything that we know of Abner, he was excellent as a general. He was 
obedient as one who was given much authority, and he was one to be feared. But where he right now would have understood that David was in and Ishbosheth was out, he didn't align himself with God's will. We saw in the previous chapter that there was a consequence which was a bloodbath. And then subsequent as well was the fact that Joab's brother, Ahaziel, was killed in a skirmish in which he pursued Abner. It would appear that that was not Abner's intent, but it does appear that Azahel indeed wanted to kill Abner, a trophy, if you would, for a young warrior. It didn't go the way that he wanted. And that's probably a lesson we need to reiterate. When the intended goal is to promote yourself at the cost of someone else, it very likely will not go well for you. We see that in our culture today, in politics. People willing to promote themselves and to demote others that actually have authority over them and to actually have God's seal of protection upon them. And we call that today a conspiracy. And actually it is treachery. And it's happening and we have to ask ourselves, how could that be happening? Well, when you no longer want God's will, you'll begin to do things your way. And you'll literally move in a direction which has seemingly the protection of authority, but it is inwardly anarchy. It is subverting law and order, violating God's authority over man. You know, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with the knowledge and wisdom they had, they probably could have come up with a great plan. They were obviously very charismatic. They outclassed everybody in their class ten times over. And they probably could have joined together, had conferences, worked behind Nebuchadnezzar's back, and maybe even accomplished an assassination of him. But they understood, according to the words of prophecy, that they were there because it had been foretold. Well, we're here as well because it's been foretold. There are things that are going to change concerning how business is done on earth. But it doesn't mean that we have to do business according to earth. It just means that we have to be in preparedness in what God requires of us as change is happening. In the same sense, Abner right now realizes that things are not to his advantage, and he has a perspective right now that has changed based on being with Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is about 40 years of age, and he's having to be protected by Abner in basically inheriting the crown of his father. They could have manufactured a new crown. They could have blown the shofar. They could have had a parade. They could have had a coronation. Why didn't they? See, that's kind of a telling sign that indicates God really wasn't into it. They could have, but they didn't. David moving into Hebron right now is going to be there about seven and a half years. And what you don't know, what I can tell you, just as an advance, Ishbosheth is only going to have about two years on the throne because it's going to take five years to convince anybody he's worth anything, and actually, he's not. They know it. They hear of where David's at. They know David. David is being still and quiet to make sure that his entrance is one in which, inarguably, God has done it. Ishbosheth right now is in fear. And his heart is set on, it's a conspiracy. Everybody's after me. And this is what he does. He charges Abner, who is the one that has secured him and protected him, with uh, immorality. 
it picks up right now in this where it says that uh, while there was war between the house of Saul in verse 6 and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So the only reason that we have a house of Saul is because Ishbosheth is still in play. There will be another one junior from Ishbosheth, which is Mephibosheth. That's the son of Jonathan. In the monarchy, it works in lineage of succession, the eldest to the next, to the next, to the next becomes the person that takes the place of the one that no longer can rule. Usually a casualty of war or disease, demise. So monarchies play out actually quite a long time. And back then, usually the monarchies on average lasted about 40 years. When a man moved into becoming a king, it was done so at about the age of 30. So you tack on 40 years, he's an older man. And the Bible would say at his ripe time to be planted in the ground. So that kind of tells you right now that at 40, the best he's got is 30. And nothing's in his favor right now because it says that his right-hand guy, who was general to his father, has a stronghold. Stronghold. So that's an interesting word because that's actually meaning that there could be strongholds in people's lives that ultimately do prevent who it is you are and what it is you want to do. So you have to understand, is the stronghold Satan or is it God's strong, mighty right hand? It's interesting, isn't it? One would say, I'm not going to let the devil do that. And the other one says, I'm not going to let God do that. I would suggest that if you have to make a determination, it's better to presume that maybe it's God's strong arm on your life and that what you need to do is to be able to say, even as the title suggests, this is not my posture. This is not the posture that I ought to be taking for in so doing, I am an imposter to the plans of God. That would mean perhaps maybe in Greek terminology, you're playing a part, but you're not doing the part. So the Lord knows all of those things. That's, that's something that is relevant in what God has had to deal with all of these years. It's being a character, but not a Bible character. Or it's being the wrong Bible character when God wants you to be the right character. But in this, we see a strengthening of his hold on the house of Saul. And I think that on one sense, you know, we could carry it over and say deep state. But I don't believe that with regard to this, there's corruption. Where deep state in our contemporary language means corruption. This is actually, I believe, a point that's being made of resignation. He's reflected. He sees the consequence of the continuance of warfare. There are some commentators that may strongly say, oh, no, 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 no. He is a conspirator. He is wanting to unite Israel and to get rid of David. I don't see that. I do not see that. I think as of last teaching, I believed he was a good soldier that was doing in the discipline of being a soldier, protecting the only thing that he had known as a young man, as a warrior, this monarchy, which was new to Israel. They hadn't really been raised under a monarchy. So there were new things to learn about it. And probably the worst thing about it is the unlearned God. Really good. 
whereas David was learning about God continually. Where one king who had been given the opportunity to be a great king, if he submitted to God, became diminished in his authority. David, who was a good shepherd and humble, became an awesome king, not because of being acknowledged, but because he believed in what God had told him, regardless of the incidences and circumstances that were happening to him. That's pretty awesome character. When you're in the grip of God and power is being expressed by God to you, nobody else sees it but you. Nobody else believes it but you. This was what David understood. He frequently found himself being comforted in solace, not weeping because of what no one was doing or acknowledging him for, but pleading with God to be his God in whatever it was he was going through. In this manner, the turn of events, I believe, is identifying right now what Ishbosheth should have known himself. I am my father's son, but I am not my father's heir, not to the kingdom. I used to sit and watch my older brother, how I admired him. I loved him as David loved him, but I am behaving contrary to the way David behaved. I am wrong. See, very often there's evidences that seemingly are self-explanatory in spiritual life, but it always takes that willingness to say, pride has got its grip on me. Satan is using pride to basically move me at greater distance from God's perfect will so that I have an opportunity to fail as an imperfect human being. And that ought to scare us, I think, more than it does. But one thing that I believe is better than being scared of the consequence is living in a holy fear of the rewarder of the men and women who exercise faith. For when we live in holy fear, we know that the rewards that God gives us outclasses anything than what may be the consequence we feel we're sparing ourselves of by entering into something or taking ourselves out of something. God always wants to bring us back to the center. And so even right now, in this case, Ithbosheth should have known, as well as Abner, this is not in my favor. This is not favorable. I am indeed behaving presumptuously, and I am trying to create something in which it is not intended for me, I am pining away. I am not looked up to. I am, in fact, posturing myself as an imposter. So God understands that. He knows. Because anything less than his son, to him, is one who is an imposter. Why? Because God wants to sum up everything in his son. How does he do that? By faith in Jesus. When we have faith that's in Jesus, then our posture changes, and God actually calls that an attribute called stature. All of a sudden, character is infused with empowerment from God, and we all of a sudden are transformed into superheroes because the greatest hero of all times actually is within us and enabling us to do extraordinary things while at the same time, there's a way in which he protects us covertly in which people don't even see us coming until we're there on the scene, taking that mountain, finishing that task, pronouncing his name, touching people in a way in which what they are going through becomes the mission and delivering them from the battle which is not them and from the hands of the enemy that has his grasp on their neck. So Saul, it says, in this case, and this is the event, that's the turn, had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Ea, 
So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? And then Abner in verse 8 became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah today? I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. Verse 9. May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer, verse 10, the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Verse 11, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And so what we see right now is that <clears throat> because Ishbosheth had not come to terms with his conscience and seen actually what he knew in his heart was the resistance of even Abner to take one more day in a position that didn't belong to him, he became embroiled in an anger that was welling up in him. As a result of that anger, he then uttered an insult, and this would have been a supreme insult. And this is one of the things that's weird about the monarchies, because back then they did what other kings did. They tried to continue to embellish the lineage of who would ultimately follow and be irrefutably unchallenged in their political system. So they had sons, lots of sons, daughters too, but they were after the sons. And if they could, they would forge alliances with other kingdoms for political purposes. But even for whatever it means, when a king was vanquished by an invading army, that king would seal the deal by taking on the concubines of the former king. And all of the people go, oh, that's, that does it. He's the guy. He took the crown, but he's got the woman. That's, he's the guy. And it doesn't make any sense because uh, they're not his women. But for the community, really, of the pagans, that was just about as good as you could get to seal the deal, to find it unchallenged. Well, God would actually say, actually, that, that's, uh, that's corrupt. That really doesn't impress me a lot. And there's a lot of problems that you're going to have in doing that. Your heart's going to be divided. And you're probably going to come up with a couple of diseases right yet, not so scientifically named. But they'll get you later on down the road a couple two thousand years. So you can be impressed with all of that. I'm not. I'm much more impressive. I would encourage you to be considering me and Israel. Why would you do that? We looked at Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, in which a king was not to multiply wives. So God would say, why would you do that? And that confirms nothing. So because this was in the mindset of the last son of Saul, then we can see right now where his integrity was, where his heart for God was. And we can see that actually it was a diminished heart for one that Right now, Abner is very accurately addressing David's the man. We have to come to terms with this. We are warring against God. But because you've charged me maliciously and insultingly, the favor that I have shown to your father in being with you, it's over. I will deliver all of Israel to David, as is right. And this is really an extraordinary decision by a general who even right now risks not having anything to do once he brokers this deal. Is he doing it believing that maybe there's a place for him on David's cabinet? I don't know. My thoughts are, as he probably says, David's the victor, I'm the loser. I'm going to posture myself in humility rather than arrogancy. My battles stand for themselves. 
I was there when David was a young 15-year-old, and I saw the Spirit of God on him. And that same Spirit hasn't left David at all, except that now he is a mighty man. He's 30, I'm pushing 58. Things have to change. That's kind of a next generation reckoning, but it's actually good for all of us to be considering that. I'm blessed by the next generation under me and under me and under me and under me. I can count from myself being a boomer to the Xers to the Zoomers. And it's pretty awesome when you see them armored in the Word of God and making inroads into the culture that is godless. Gives you great hope. Because you don't have to worry about the conspiracies. What are they doing? They're doing God's will. And as long as you know that that generation is doing God's will and they're full of God's Spirit, you can trust the results that they're going to be godly and awesome. So this is what we see right now is that God's taking the circumstance at hand and he's doing a turn of events. The David right now, again, it's it's a little bit awkward because we're not told of the full timeline. But we do know that he was there for seven and a half years. And so God's just kind of compressing this into a storyline in which we get pretty quickly to the goal. And so Abner, it says, sent messengers, this is verse 12, on his behalf to David, saying, <clears throat> Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Now he's actually being a wise general right now. For because he was adversarial to David with Saul, he is basically aware that he could be executed by David. In fact, no doubt he would have heard that an Amalekite was executed for making the presumption that David would be happy in hearing that he participated in the killing of Saul, which he did, and he was lying. He was trying to promote himself. Abner could have also said, man, I don't know if I have any persuasive skills with David anymore. In fact, I would say, if anything, because of what now has happened, I stand a chance of being executed judicially. I'm the one that planned this cute little battle scene, 12 warriors, 12 warriors meeting in the middle. They die. I'm responsible now for ticking off Azahel, in which he's now killed. And I know that right now I've got Joab angry at me. I need to appeal to the favor of the king that I can give him what my influence allows, but I can also receive from him the protection that I need. And it's actually a pretty cool picture of spiritual life. We have authority to give to the Lord what is ours, but we also can appeal to God that in that, oh Lord, I need protection. I'm giving it all to you. I'm holding nothing back. I'm vulnerable in this exchange, Lord. I need your protection, your covering. Can we have that covenant? And God says, absolutely. And he'll remind us of actually when he made that covenant with us. And that covenant was actually made on the cross in which his son, Jesus, pronounced us as forgiven. And because of that, then it is as solid from the day that it was pronounced to the time that it was confirmed in Jesus going to the grave and arising from it. You can always take God at his word and ultimately at his accomplishment. And his ascension meant this, you're coming with me. If he said it to a thief that was on the cross next to him, this day you shall be with me in paradise, and he will say to us, that word that was given to that guy is what you can operate in confidence. Holy fear, revere me. My covenant is as good as the day that I uttered it. So it's actually a wonderful picture that we see here unfolding. Abner just says, I want to give it all. While I've got an opportunity to give it, I'm going to. Because one way or the other, it's either going to be taken or I give it. And by the way, I think that's a good thing too. God gets to have what it is, is his, and that's us. And we can either have that be something that is the consequence of being sovereignly governed by a just and righteous God, 
or we can participate in his sovereignty and simply say, you got me. And now I want you to have my heart and I want you to have this and I want you to have that and I want you to have my dreams and I want you to have that junk in my mind and the stuff that I have craved. It's all yours. But the very best of what I have, I give it to you and trust in the covenant that you have given to me. So this is ultimately what we see Abner doing in this spiritual picture. David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, even though David is a picture of the Lord in certain illustrations, this is one in which that picture no longer is necessary because this shows you that David also wrestled with himself. What we need to be reminded of is that Michael was his first wife. But as I said on Sunday with regard to the monarchy and the malarkey, Michael really was a political piece. Saul used her, and I have no doubt she had affection and love for David. The scriptures tell us that. But Saul was actually using her as an ensnarement because he saw the power of David. He was able to not deny it with his encounter with Goliath and all of a sudden the admiration of all the people of Israel and so he was actually seeing that that would be an opportunity to ensnare David and take him out. Because before he became, right, a son-in-law, he had to take his warrior spirit and go out and kill Philistines and circumcise them and bring that back as proof. Now, as I said before, David also could have said, you know what? I realize that I can do it and I can have a wife and be the son-in-law of a king. But something tells me that the special relationship that I have with God had nothing to do with this. Even though that was in my ear, I attacked Goliath on the premise of him insulting God. It had nothing to do with him firing insults at Saul or my brethren I did that because I had a passion for God. And God delivered Goliath in my hands because my faith and my trust was put in him. And I just took what I had and I gave it all to God. And he planted that stone right in the forehead. And then I did with my hands what God told me to do. And that was to cut off the head of the giant, which is a spiritual picture as well. From that point on, David could have said, as he was brought to Saul, Praise God, hallelujah, I'm glad I could serve the king, but I'm going back to my father's sheep right now because I've got to put some straw out, got to protect him from the wolves. Well, David, wait a minute. I, let's, let's be reasonable. You've obviously done a great thing. You've given Israel a great victory. And you know, probably you know, that my daughter was thrown in on that. Well, David did lean into that. But I believe that we could also surmise that he could have leaned into God just a bit stronger and trusted the Lord just one more expression of faith and seen what the Lord would do for him without having to have any political affiliation, anything that would bind him in a secular civil position. And that's the thing. We will find ourselves in vocations, moving in, if you would, our expression secularly and with others that are not believers. And I believe that in those occasions, we ought to be able to say, this is that which God has shown me. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way, 
we're in a completely pagan culture, but what we know is that they were cultured and steeped in their faith, belief in God, that as they went, they went in the power of the Lord. And therefore, they, in doing that, they weren't subject to corruption. They weren't subject to persuasion. On the contrary, they were the persuaders. They were the influencers. You want to talk about the first influencers? Those guys were it. The ones in the Bible that proclaimed faith in God before Instagram or Facebook ever came in to glorifying the image of men and of women, those guys had it down because all they wanted to do was to impress God and not others. As a result of impressing God, God allowed them to be impressive to others. So what we see right now is David's heart is being tugged. But I really believe that after 10 years with no postal service, nothing that shows us they had any communication and the fact that actually Michael had been wed off. In other words, she had been given to another man. That's what Saul did. To pay David back because of his jealousy over the fame of David and his insecurities regarding David he gave his wife away to another man. So why is it that David would request her when in fact we already know that he was given this beautiful person named Abigail, who I believe, as I said last week, was closer, if not the perfect choice redemptively for David. And the only explanation we have is that he was behaving as a monarch according to the terms of men. And we also saw that in the list of wives that he took in addition to this woman, Nabal's wife, that he made an alliance with another king of Gerur. He fell into a political pattern of trying to secure that which God had already given to him. So the lesson again to be learned is that trust in God with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he shall direct your path. He will not do anything but that. Or you may say, but the path split. Which one do I take? The one that God says is your path. He'll direct your path. But it's split in four ways. He'll direct which of those four paths you are to take. And he may say, ride on that one for a while, then zip across and take lane four. Break. Go left. Take the next one. Break. Go right. Take the next one. And you may have to say, I'm driving all over the place. And God said, that's okay. I'm your garment. I've ordained it. But if you are going on your own, not trusting God, then you will be inevitably on the one-way street in which you're driving the wrong way and you're going to get hit. If I can use it as an illustration, David's going to experience a hit later on by the choices that he's made presently. And again, this is only subtly projected right now, but what he's doing is he's behaving like a king. I will say though, for the record, and it needs to be said, he was a great king because even though he will behave like a king, he was extraordinary in how he still behaved greater than all kings. It's just saying he could have eliminated some things that became for him sorrowful. And so he's going to create sorrow right now. He says, Abner, you know where Michael's at? Grab her for me. And in one sense, he's lawfully right. That was his lawful wife, it had not been terminated by him, meaning he did not give a divorce certificate to her. She was taken from him. So to one degree, he's really taking what actually is his, but maybe it warranted a second thought. David, look who I have given to you in place of her. And don't mess things up by breaking things up. You don't need her. You don't need her. So what I'm saying is that 10 years earlier, David may have been able to make a decision that just played out so beautifully. 
more songs to write, more sheep to count and shear and blankets to sell and a family to just, you know, but that's the past. We're right now in the present of what David is doing right now politically. And so Abner basically comes to this agreement that that's what he's going to do to have his wife, Michael, fetched. He says, I betrothed to myself this woman for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. How did he all of a sudden get in this? This was an assignment given to Abner. Abner went to Ishbosheth and said, Hey, get your sister. Why? Uh, because probably she's the only one that could have been influenced by her brother over these things, which again shows you at times the connection that influence has with family as opposed to somebody on the outside. And this is basically a command. What's happening? Abner is in command. Abner has power. Abner has heard from David. This is what I want. The covenant's going to be forged. If you do what it is I want, and I'm lawfully pursuing this because she was my wife. So Ishbosheth gets the command. He tells his sister, because they didn't have the rights in those days to argue with that. And he basically summons her, and she comes. Verse 15, Ishbosheth sent, took her from her husband from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Behurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And there you have right now a sad occurrence in which a man who quite innocently, and he was, who had been given a woman, and it's true, unlawfully, but he loved her. And what we will discover is that his love for her was greater than the love that David would ever show her and the love that she could never reciprocate to him. This is what you call a domestic mess up right now because of politics, because of playing in a manner that God says, I don't want you to play games with this. Love is for real and it has consequences when it is not done according to my will and ways. And so Michael right now, in what you would call a political ploy, is brought, a man's heart is broken. She will never esteem him as he would have desired. And you'll see that later on in the study. And so in verse 17, now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now, verse 18, then do it for the Lord has spoken of David saying by my hand or by the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all the enemies. And Abner, verse 19, also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away. Notice this. And he went in peace because Abner had come to terms with being an adversary of David. And he let that go and he corrected Ishbosheth, who had incited in him the behavior that said, I'm not doing this anymore on behalf of you or on behalf of your father whom I served. We sever this. I go over on David's side and I bring with David or to David all of Israel whose hearts had been beating for him. What I know to be true about him, I'm now going to do by virtue of my reputation and my word and those who will follow me. 
And by the way, that happens to be one of the most extraordinary things that a man or woman with reputation can do is in a time in which resignation is necessary, then you carry those who flat out need a change, a rescue. Because Ishbosheth did not have the power, anointing, authority to do anything. Couldn't do it. Saul was able to hold it together because he had grown up as the king. Ishbosheth had nothing to offer. And only on the horizon, David, to challenge him. So Abner made the right decision. But in making the right decision, Abner will also find himself vulnerable to another man who will make the wrong decision. As you can see, it's pretty life. Uh, it is pretty real life in terms of what is happening. It's not a pretty life. It's actually very ugly. But it's real life in terms of what's happening and principles that are at play and decisions that are being made that have both blessings and consequences. And it's all being presented right now. To the close, ultimately, of chapter 3, we will see that Joab ultimately will strategize to have Abner murdered by taking, if you would, the situation and twisting it to his favor. Abner was able to leave David's presence with peace. And by the way, you're able to leave the Lord's presence with peace. The enemy will try and twist that salutation. And the enemy will endeavor to violate that pact. Sometimes it plays out in scriptures as the consequence of a life lost. And in fact, this will be a life lost. A man that David actually will honor in a song that he will require all Israel to remember and to lament. And what happens to Joab? Well, we begin to see his character. And he will prove to be adversarial ultimately to David and not one that actually is a benefit to David. Not in the sincerest way. Not in the best way. Not in the most spiritual way. So God asks us to be careful in the alliances that we forge with others in business, in churches, even in churches, we're to have an eye very clearly set upon God because of the imposters who come in and they set themselves against God. The vulnerability of the sheep are still real. That's why one of the best things you can do is pray for the anointing to be on the leadership of men in the church, their spouses, that they find themselves knitted together in their marriages and the rearing of the children, and ultimately the composition of themselves in this community called believers, congregants.